I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Joseph Finn. And we love to watch. We love to watch Russian Thought Bombs. Hey Joseph, hey Peter. Hey guys, how are you? Hey team, doing good. You know, Peter, when you say team to everyone... It it sounds like you don't actually think of people as a team, but just <laughs> just you, you your thes- your thesaurus is gone, and <laughs> and you've run out of greetings. Yeah, uh, guys, fellas, team, comrades, comrades. Oh, ooh, that's a that's a good comrades. One. There we yeah. go. Yes, yeah, full comrades. <laughs> yeah. So Joe. Oh, before I forget, Joseph, welcome to the Five Timers Club. Woohoo! Where's my boy? He's gonna be. Yeah, no, you don't get anything. Actually, yeah. you owe us money. Oh. Just to be clear, you <laughs> has five dollars per appearance, starting on the fifth appearance. Yeah, at twenty <laughs> we get a gold watch from you. Yeah, and at thirty we both quit our jobs and retire. <laughs> Come and live in your closet. Uh, it's basically an armoire. Okay, well, I mean, I get top. What's what's the what's the what's the equivalent of the top bunk of an armoire? <laughs> there is a top shelf. Thank. <laughs> Yeah, because you know what? That's that's my DJ name. <laughs> top Shelf? <laughs> DJ yep. Top Shelf. DJ Top Shelf. I'd rather be <laughs> Bottom Shelf in an armoire because I could theoretically lay on the bottom. I imagine Top Shelf in an armoire is probably uh, hanging off of the pole like a sloth. And I frankly, mean, I just don't have the upper body strength for it. True. Well, I f- well, there's not just a pole if there's a shelf. I mean, you can I'm assuming you can go on the shelf and also if you're bottom shelf, Peter, guess which way farts go? Oh, that's they true. That's true. Everyone says that about farts. They tend to go down. Farts are actually by far the most impacted by gravity of any air movement. <laughs> I think, oh. you're t- I think you're talking out of your ass on that one. <laughs> oh, yo. I do like that we're hey, going to show back to science and research. Uh, yeah. One of our early themes. One of our early themes. I think if we listen to some of those old episodes more frequently, we'd be like, oh, fuck, there's like 10 segments I forgot we did. <laughs> <laughs> because next week really is our 75th episode spectacular. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. As soon as I post to SoundCloud, I use that little device from Men in Black that just blanks my memory, and that's also allows me to keep using the same stories every week. I mean, that's a led to our Airbud episode. So the more <laughs> the more you can have short term and long term memory memory loss, I think the better for for our dynamic. I mean, bad for your life, probably bad for your finances. I'm sure your girlfriend fucking hates you, but really good for this. It has nothing to do with the show. Um, She already hates me so far that anything else I do is kind of whatever. Is that Um, why you guys moved? Because, like, you had some friction in your relationship, but you're like, well, if we move across the country... Who else is she gonna have? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to create uh, like a uh, bunker situation where it's she had ge- to get along with me. It's geographic gaslighting. Mm-hmm. 
she's starting to make friends now and uh so Ooh. we're probably gonna pick up and move soon um is that why you were in canada scouting yeah. it out scouting it out <laughs> seeing you know maybe we can get a, a cabin in the middle of alberta and you know just see just see Work on your uh, correspondence. how far away get away from people well you can get clint eastwood's uh, house in the uh, in, in the movie we all watched yeah he doesn't need it anymore now he yeah, no. now he lives no, in the firefox just- yeah, no, yeah, exactly. He's one with the Firefox. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the movie, he has to hand the keys to the Firefox over, which is very sad. Yeah, I'm assuming what we saw was some sort of jet human uh, matrimony ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing more intimate than someone literally stepping into your mind. So, uh, yeah, so this is our last week of Guest Request Month. And uh, Joseph had initially, uh, after his first appearance, ninth episode, our second ever guest, he said, guys... I got a movie I want to do. If you ever do it, please have me on. And we kept it in mind. That movie was Joe Dante's Explorers. <laughs> and uh, when we reached out, say, guess what, Joe? Y- year and a half. But your dream has come true. You get to do Explorers. He messaged back. Like, you see those three dots going. You expect, like, fuck yeah. Thank you. You can. Um, you're definitely yeah, in my will now. It. Big, yeah, big it's, smiles. Big smiles. He messaged back, yeah, maybe I'll do something else. <laughs> uh, so, um, so we waited in anticipation. And what did you choose, Joseph? You chose the 1982 directed Clint Eastwood movie, Firefox. Firefox. It's a fox that's on fire. Peter, Peter, <laughs> Peter are you gonna you gonna do your Firefox? Firefox. Wow. Yeah. Really, really lost it. Yep. Firefox. Um, barrel roll. Yeah, no one tells him to do a barrel. So this was, we're like, oh, okay, that's a movie we've never heard of. But, you know, let's 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 get into it. Let's we So we look it up. It's a Clint Eastwood movie. Like that guy. He's a good guy. Uh, we have made some references on the show that... Um, this movie is a little longer than what we normally do. Uh, I believe back of the box runtime is 462 minutes. Um, <laughs> as a matter of fact, so uh, if you read the Bible, you know that God rested on the seventh day. And during that entire seventh day, he watched Firefox. Um, <laughs> so, so Joseph, we want to we want to talk a little bit for our opening segment. We're going to get into a little bit of just some Eastwood discussion because we've never done uh, uh, a Clint Eastwood movie on this show. But first and foremost, hey Joseph, why Firefox? Firefox is part of a genre of movies that I have a weird fascination with. A little background: I'm born in 1973. I'm a little older than you guys, so I grew up during the the grand era of the 80s techno-thriller movies, and a little bit of the late 70s stuff. So you've got your fourth protocol, you've got your Firefox, uh, you've got uh, the, 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 one of the last ones of it is The Hunt for Red October, basically the U.S. versus Soviet Cold War stuff. And I have a weird fascination with all of these movies that are kind of based around guys and tech and spy stuff for the most case, as they're running around trying to avert a war between the Soviets and the U.S., or trying to avoid a nuclear war, like a War Games-type thing, or one of the uh, ancillary wars, like in Iron Eagle, which don't ever watch Iron Eagle except for the first one. It's goofy fun, but it's stupid. I mean, it's deeply <laughs> stupid. And I have a weird fascination with these movies growing up 
at a time when, I mean, around like the time of this movie, we thought there was a good chance that, hey, we're all going to get crisped. Thank God those times have passed. <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're not talking now. We're talking, you know, maybe one... Sorry, I mean, this is really downgrading, you know, what if Guam gets uh, gets bombed by a missile. But we're talking, you know, major thermonuclear exchange with the Soviets. We seriously thought that that might happen. So, you know, these are the kind of movies that were kind of the background of it, of the war between, the, the essentially the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviets. And I'm kind of fascinated by the various forms these movies take. And a lot of them are these kind of guys movie techno thrillers. And I think this is the one... Uh, entry that Eastwood has in it. There might be a couple others. He, he's made a lot of movies, people. So that makes a lot of sense. It's a it's a genre that you're right. We probably wouldn't cover on this show naturally, and if we did, it would be like you know some sort of Chuck Norris canon version of that, right? Uh, which probably doesn't really get to the mainstream success that you're talking about because this movie was a hit. So we made a lot of money. I'm sure a lot of them did. So you you mentioned, uh, you know, Hunt for Red October, War Game, some of those. It makes sense why you brought the genre on here. Let's talk a little more about why you brought this particular movie out of all of those techno thrillers on here. Firefox, I think, is a really interesting one because I think of it as the one major technico- techno thriller that Eastwood has done. It's a genre that I don't think he's especially gone into, and I think it's a really interesting one in terms of what he brings to it. He did not write the screenplay, uh, but he directed it. He starred in it. It's pretty, he produced it. This is his he baby. He produced it, yeah. And I find it really curious that he focused on this one. It's, it's obviously a, a movie that he wanted to make, he wanted to star in. And I think that's really interesting that he chose this particular part. And I think this part actually works kind of well with the particular skills he has as an actor, which I don't think are high, but what he does, he does well. And I find that very interesting when you have a guy who knows what his skills are as a director, as an actor, and works with them. And I think this is a good example of that. I, mean, I would never say this is a great movie, but I think it's a movie made by people who know what they're doing and do it fairly well. There's problems in this movie. I am never going to say that there aren't. <laughs> I think I think Joseph's sensing where this is leading a little bit. <laughs> he's, kind of, he's kind of pre-defending it. I'm, I'm going to say off the bat that I, I did not like this movie. And as much as I made jokes about it leading up to, I was expecting to like it because I like Clint Eastwood. I like war thrillers. Um, you know, I like that kind of like little bit of science fiction dipped in there. Um, you know, it... I was expecting to to enjoy this, and I was surprised that I didn't. So, and I think Peter, correct me if I'm wrong. You're kind of on the same page, or I might be a little friendlier, but yeah, generally pretty negative towards it. Um, I also this was a movie that we reached the point that that halfway point where he steals the plane, and I paused to go to the bathroom. It's an hour and a half, and I went, "Oh my god, oh my god!" There's another hour of this movie left. <laughs> I, I will. I will not defend the the length of this movie. It could be cut by a good thirty minutes, easy. <laughs> so I, I do want to, and the reason I want to preface this because we are we love to watch, and this is definitely a case where, I, obviously, I didn't see this till now, and and this is a a representative of something our our guest has brought on. So so Joseph, I just want to say to you that you know I I I'm actually really, and I said this to Peter before the show. Where I, I said that, you know, I'm actually really fascinated to talk about this and excited to because I feel like there's something big I'm missing. And I'm very excited for 
Joseph to to kind of elucidate that. So I do feel a little bad that it's guest request month and you brought on a movie that didn't really appeal to us. But on the same note, I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff here that I do want to talk about. So I hope I'm glad that you are a five time guest. So I hope I hope you don't take uh, anything that's going to happen uh, personally. But I do think it's going to make for a very good discussion that I'm excited for. No, I'm, I'm all for talking about. I mean, it's all personal taste, obviously. Uh, and and I'm curious as to how you reacted to this movie, a movie that I genuinely enjoy, while also acknowledging it's not top level Clint Eastwood. Nobody would ever say it. Clint Eastwood probably wouldn't say that. <laughs> No, Clint Eastwood probably doesn't remember that he made this movie, <laughs> but that's, that's a different story. So that's a perfect transition, though. So we haven't done an Eastwood. Eastwood is so weird to me because as an actor and I think as a director, he is responsible for some of my favorite movies of all time. Um, you know, for, as an actor, you have the, the Dollars trilogy, especially Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, you have stuff like In the Line of Fire, which is just like one of Wolfgang Peterson's best movies. Um, and then as a director, you have uh, fucking Unforgiven and you have uh, A Perfect World, which is uh, one of those movies I bring up whenever ever, anyone's asking, like, what's an overlooked movie that you think deserves more love? Like, A Perfect World is a, is a masterpiece. But I think that Clint Eastwood as a director, he's he's I would say his overall career is kind of lackluster. He always directs well. I mean, he it, but but not like flashy. Like it's it's a very competent level of it's directing. Incredibly sober, which I think hurts Firefox specifically. I think it hurts a lot of his movies where, like, you see, oh, that's competent. I knew what was going on. The action was clear, but there's no flair. So in that way, he's almost like a Ron Howard. Like Ron mm-hmm. Howard's not a bad d- director, but he, you know, a lot of times you're you're never like, oh my god, you know, it's a Ron Howard movie, right? Uh, when you walk out. But I will say the difference between Ron Howard and Clint Eastwood is I think Ron Howard has a better eye in general for material, and he's willing to do more interesting things. I think Clint Eastwood likes to work, and he likes to direct, and he picks terrible project after terrible project. And because he is a competent director, and because he can attract big stars, he makes a lot of like three-star movies that everyone goes, yeah. That was fine, but I'm never going to think of Invicticus again, so let's all go home. Invictus. <laughs> well, I call it Invicticus. You call it whatever you want. <laughs> Look, if we've established one thing on this show is that I don't follow your rules. <laughs> I don't want your life. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of agree with you in some sense, but I think you're throwing a lot of shade at... Uh, some mid-career work of his that, like, he doesn't, he didn't, he never got bad. He, I guess you could say now, recently, he got bad, but he made. So what? This. What do you think it specifically like? But he made this, and then three years later, he made Pale Rider, which is a masterpiece. Pale Rider's good. And he made uh, Outlaw Josie Wales a few years before this, and Outlaw Josie Wales is also an incredible movie. His wedding- I think I, I'll give I'll give Josie Wales masterpiece. I'll give like Pale Pale Rider like pretty good. Yeah. for a remake of Shane. As, as a guy who lo- as a guy who loves Eastwood as a director, uh, while acknowledging that he's not you know top tier, I will also say uh, Pale Rider. It's in the very good category. Yeah, I love, I absolutely love most of his Western directing. I think that his sort of sober approach goes very well for that. However, he well, it's also- perfect for like an Unforgiven, which is like a sober movie 
about depressed people holding on like and and a perfect world too like that's a that's a very sober movie so when he's doing that it definitely works what I'm basically saying is that he doesn't have an arc that's easy to follow. Basically, it, it's very similar to um, a Ridley Scott or, you know, a, a Ron Howard where there's right material and wrong material and excited and not excited. If I may, I've always thought the director he close, most closely resembles is, frankly, the guy he worked with the most, Don Siegel. A very solid career with some highlights. High Plains Drifter uses a lot of um, editing as psychological perspective that reminds me of Don Siegel. High Plains Drifter reminds me a lot of The Beguiled. Oh, right. That reminds me of that, where it's using these editing flashbacks to uh, demonstrate um, a character's sort of like broken mental state. And I think that there's little, like literally little flashes of that in Firefox, but mostly Firefox is a, is a very bored exercise. Like it feels like he did, he kind of lost some of that seagull energy that, you know, I see in other movies of his, but not necessarily. Seagull and Scott too, to get back to my other kind of reason that I think that Clint Eastwood's um, directing career is is filled with a lot of kind of shrugs is I think Siegel and Scott chose a lot more interesting material. You know, Clint Eastwood, they, you know, people say this about Tom Hanks, that Tom Hanks in his later career, his like, his character is like a guy who's like really good at his job. And that's what he's really good at playing. And I think a lot of times that works for Hanks. And I think what what Eastwood is most interested at in is like people that are like really good at their jobs. Like he wants to just show the process of like uh, you know like a blood work, like I'm an investigator, and or a true crime, or you know even a perfect world or Unforgiven. Like these are the people that are at the top of their game, and now they've received a little and they have to come back. Like I I think that is you know Million Dollar Baby, another one of him trying to but he's and i think firefox uh qualifies as well where you know he's showing the process and there's not a lot outside of it um and i i think that can be very good but it also can be really limiting in your in the type of movies that you're making Mm -hmm. and i would also say a lot of it depends on how good the source material is that he has to work with Mm -hmm. with the exception of bridges of madison county which somehow is a pretty good movie based on a terrible novel i have not seen that one but yeah he's he's a guy that rarely i think rarely elevates material mystic river is a book that i've read that he i think he uses too heavy of a hand on I think the Dennis Lehane book is better. It's not a great Dennis Lehane book. I prefer like a Shutter Island or something or a Gone right. Gone. But, but uh, I think, yeah, I think that he can screw up the source material. But yeah, he rarely, I think he rarely elevates it as a director. And I, I think I'm friendlier to him as a director than Aaron is. Like, I really like Bright I don't. I don't think I'm movies. unfriendly. I don't. It's just that he, it's basically like if he has a good script, he'll make a good movie. And if he has an okay script, he'll make an okay movie. And if he has an bad script he'll make a movie that has interesting actors and is okay to look at the one movie that i'll say would have been great as him as a swan song for him to retire on and i hate to say this about people because it's a really rude thing to say um but i have to kind of say it grand torino would have been a great way for him to exit because that was a movie that still showed that he was enticed by projects he could still craft interesting characters and that script 
is terrible. Like the dialogue in Gran Torino is so laddered, and it is so, such an obvious film. Like every step of Gran Torino is so obvious, but when it's over, you kind of feel like crying. Like it has it has an emotional resonance that he adds to it. So occasionally he rises up as source material, but that's just not that's not usually his path. I think Gran Torino rises above the source materials because he's like giving a shit and acting for the first time. And like it's not the directing that you watch Gran Torino and are like, oh man. Such, you know, it's, it's such good directing. It's it's the fact that, like, Clint Eastwood commits to this character and is this grumpy asshole and he swears at kids and he does it really well and he has an arc. So I think I think you're 100 percent right. That would have been the perfect swan song for him as an actor, especially. Um, but it's it's definitely him acting to elevate the material. I wouldn't say necessarily directing. Yeah, for, for, for directing, I would actually go a couple movies earlier. I would say his last great movie is Letters from Iwo Jima, which I think is just a wonderful and that one great I movie. Yeah, his World War II movies are both pretty terrific. Um, I've actually never seen Flags of Our Fathers. Uh, Letters from Iwo Jima is better. <laughs> so I've heard. That's, that's the Japanese side, correct? Yes. Yes, the Japanese story is is better, and it showed that he he actually cared about humanity. Like he has like a he he has a sense of like um, wanting to um, get in touch with his characters, and he likes the idea of like depicting them as human beings and not just like like Aaron was saying. Usually, people get reduced to just guys doing their job in his works. Mm-hmm. This is something where he's like, I really wanted I really wanted to delve into the humanity of what drove these people to act the way they did. Um, and yeah, that's, that's something to like admire in, in that movie. That would probably be his last movie. I would consider like a great movie. Yeah. And, uh, and, and as you said, based on great material. Yeah. With, I mean, in this case, yeah. uh, the general, I, I don't remember his name at all. Sorry. Uh, the, yeah, one, that Ken, the one that Ken Watanabe plays. Yes. And, and, the, and I will say off the bat, I haven't seen Jersey boys because I'm generally not a fan of musicals, but, uh, J Edgar <sighs> is probably his worst movie I've seen. By oh him. no, 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 Jersey Boys. <laughs> oh, I, I have not seen Jersey Boys because I'm just not a fan of jukebox musicals and I'm not a fan of like a lot of these type of movies. But J. Edgar is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. See, and I, I haven't even seen J. Edgar. I, it's just he ends up with this this reputation for so many movies as so, so like generic or bad or like, hey, what a great fucking Cool, you get Leonardo DiCaprio to start a movie about J. Edgar, and it's and then it's like shitty. J. Edgar's what? such a weird movie. It looks like somebody peed on the film stock. It's like all the colors are. Well, wrong. he's an old man. He <laughs> can't control everything. <laughs> it's like one of the ugliest movies I've I've seen. It's a very strange experience watching that movie. I'm gonna say the worst movie he directed that I've seen. Uh, is a movie called Firefox. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but that's that's only because I have like I haven't seen Changeling, I haven't seen Hereafter, I haven't seen Jersey Boys, I haven't seen American Sniper. Um, if it's not Firefox, I'd probably say Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which is just a fucking like a waste of Kevin Spacey and John Cusack at like the height of their powers. I am looking and a pretty at good the, novel. I'm looking at the wiki page or hereafter, and I'm like, "Is this the movie that actually came out?" Yes. Yeah. I, re- I remember the wave, the wave trailer. I'm like, yes. "This is gonna be fucking good." <laughs> and then everyone's like, "It's not good," and I didn't watch. Yeah, it. Yeah, that's that was gonna be my next point. Is that um, 
sometimes when there's there's actors, directors, producers that say, you know, I'm just a workman. I just like working. I like going from project to project. I'm just uh, a simple country worker. I'm just a I'm just a simple country director. Uh, he's pulling out his suspenders. He's like, I just like to direct pictures for the real people, you know, about a a, a homosexual FBI director, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh he's, he's these workman directors who claim like it doesn't matter what it is, like if it entices me in the moment, I go chase it. I like to talk about Ridley Scott a lot because I think he's a fascinating dude for like how he has such love for a material and he'll make like an amazing movie that has like makes no fucking sense as a script but like he puts so much heart into it that you're like where is this coming from because this next movie will be about like i don't know ashley judd falling in love in the wine country (laughs) that's the thing is these workman directors do these these jobs and it also means that there's these movies like invictus j edgar changeling uh that like even if they are even if they get okay reviews, which I don't think any of I think Invictus is the only one of those three I named that got okay reviews. Even if they get okay reviews, they're bound to be forgotten by time. These are not movies that are going to be discussed 30, 40 years from now as movies or in the context of their director's careers, probably because he directed so many movies. People are going to focus on the, the highs and the lows. And when you're just like a workman director and you make these movies that nobody gives a shit about, don't doesn't have any cultural conversation around it, like they just bound to be forgotten. And I don't know. Yeah. Gen- I genuinely don't know if he cares. I don't think he cares. Um, I definitely I think he, he just wants to direct. And, and, you know, especially as he's kind of gotten older, he seems to be directing at a more rapid pace probably because it's easier than acting he gets to sit in a chair he doesn't have to memorize shit he points the camera tells people to point the camera and he you know goes home for the day it's probably you know i don't know which one's easy he doesn't i i assume directing is an easier job um and he clearly is someone who you know god love him wants to work until he's 140 years old um which i think is like it's like five years off um, <laughs> <laughs> like that, that is that is a noble he's, thing. He's I will an old say. man. Yeah, like, yeah. So, yeah, and and it's I, I do I, I think just the the well runs dry quicker than you would expect for someone who has been directing films for five decades. Like when you're like, what's your good like your top five Eastwood directed movies are probably like the only five movies that he's directed that you would give four point five to five stars to. Like that. That well runs dry very quickly, I think, when you're talking about Eastwood as a director. Less – and I think even though, like, you have someone like Ridley Scott who's only directed, like, 17 films, you could probably name a good, like, 8 to 10 that you're like, oh, these are all, like, fucking worth watching even if – even if they're not perfect. Like, it's it's so crazy. I, I just think he has a – you know, he has a – for how omnip- – omnipresent is not the right word. For how – for how like we think of him as like this almost like mythical figure, I think from a directing standpoint, especially his like number of classics he's made, he is he just got a bad ratio. He's got a really bad ratio of like f- good, great films directed to mediocre shrugs. I would say that's probably fair, and though occasionally I'm going to say I'm going to push back against one thing. I think occasionally he picks an interesting project. That maybe has gotten forgotten. Honky Talk Man, for instance, that's a fascinating little movie. It's a weird little music movie. that's almost like him deciding to do Jersey Boys because people forget Clint Eastwood's um, 
has made several movies that are essentially about music. Hockey Talk Man, uh, Jersey Girls, uh, Bird. Play Misty for me. Play Misty for me. And I think that's a really interesting sidebar to his career. But overall, I, I do agree with your point, Aaron. Um, I just think he's not a top-level director, but he does have, you know, interesting sides to him. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, he made what I would call one of the top five Westerns of all time with Unforgiven. Um, he obviously has an acting career that I think, you know, will be will will be remembered. I think I think his acting career will probably surpass his directing career in people's mind long after he's gone, uh, just because he, you know, he is like the iconic iconic western star yeah and then like he became like our iconic old man action hero besides before like the uh, harrison fords of the world tried to slip into that role i do find it like, really interesting by the way that he decided for his first directing job considering mr western play misty for me did he decide to go as far away from westerns as he could with that yes yes okay but okay we're all agreeing <laughs> i mean all i right. think farthest away from westerns <laughs> is uh space rock opera <laughs> okay, I don't think he's made that one. So sure. <laughs> I mean, if you just like, if you're if you're looking at a chart, Joseph is what I'm saying. Well, I'm saying if we're looking at a chart, the furthest movie that he's made away from westerns is probably Casper. <laughs> Casper. The thing about Clint Eastwood as an actor that is interesting is, like, he has lazy directing. Uh, he also sometimes has lazy performances, but the difference here is that he's not a natural director, I don't think. He can naturally come into movies and get them in on time and under budget. Like, I guess that part of it is natural to him. But, like, he doesn't have a natural sense of personality that shines through in every movie. He, as an actor, is a fucking natural. He has a charisma that I think is kind of unrivaled among most actors of his generation, where... He's kind of interesting to watch in any scene, even if he's not really doing much. That's why he's able to phone it in later on, is because he was never really... What's the opposite of phoning it in? Texting it in? Being impersonating <laughs> it in? He's never, like, a super expressive as a performer. I mean, he, he had roles like that. I just watched The Beguiled, which is uh, a masterpiece. I've used the word masterpiece now twice in this episode, uh, talking about a guy that we are very critical about. Uh, the Beguiled is an amazing movie. Hold on. I'm not critical of Clint. Clint Eastwood has made some masterpieces. Yeah. I just think, you know, he's he he his reputation as a director is not hit, hit, hit. Yes. And, Correct. and yeah. Yes. And few can few can have like a Tarantino esque like boom, 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 boom. Everything you make, even if it doesn't make a shit ton of money, everybody is talking about. Few people can hope for that. Almost no one should hope for that. Um but because you're just going to be disappointed. But there's a there's a natural charisma. And sometimes I think he betrays himself. with his When he's directing himself, he sometimes betrays himself. In this movie, I think he very often has takes time away from himself. Or the script doesn't give him enough breathing room. Or he doesn't make up for it. Um, in terms of some sort of like dramatic impact. And I think that's true in a lot of his other movies, too. Like, I, I think, like, when, sometimes when he's directing himself, he just doesn't, like, trust himself enough to be on camera. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a movie where he clearly got a little shy about appearing in front of camera, being the Clint Eastwood guy, and that's why he, you know, put on a mustache for a little bit. <laughs> shy is a word. I know you're joking, but shy is a word for how he is in this movie. He has the, the shower freakout scene and the freakout in the cabin at the beginning, and then it's mostly goodbye to, you know, Clint Eastwood giving a performance. He mostly just goes from place to place and goes like, huh? I really like that. He is surrounding himself with a ton of interesting character actors who may not have great material to work with, but my God, they are trying to do the best they can with it. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little bit when we get into the the movie proper because, yeah, there's like a who's who of like, I know that person. Right. So, uh, yeah, so let's let's do that. We already started getting into it. So Clint Eastwood, uh, overall C+, I think, all around. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all agree. I would, uh, C, I would C say plus. A B minus. I'm like gonna average. Honest, I'm going to be honest. As a director, if you averaged out his career. And it's you, probably like a D. Yeah, it probably would be like a D, right? There's a lot of one out of fives in there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot so, of bad stuff. I think that kind of shows you can't grade stuff like that in a point system no. or a Metacritic system. Because you're like, yeah, I'd throw the... Like, he probably has the same score as Brett Ratner. Yeah, well, like, and also, you know, who cares... That he made Firefox because he made Unforgiven, so that's, like, enough. Like, if, if every other movie was terrible that he made, you go, fine, well, he made Unforgiven. Yeah. Like, like that's, yeah. That's, an, that's enough. Yeah, yeah, we can't all be Charles McNaughton or whatever that directed Night of the Hunter and did one fucking movie. Like, some, you gotta yeah, or work, like man. Or, like, a Troy Duffy, like, two in, two home runs, <laughs> go home. Everybody loves Moondock Saints. I will not be able to live with myself. It's Charles Lawton, not Charles McNaughton. Charles Lawton? There we go. Charles oh, Peter! Oh, did we have some name issues? A little difficult. <laughs> oh. wish, I wish I was editing. I would, like, repeat it for the next hour. Just just Peter saying it, and then, like, Joseph correcting him, and then, like, the Price is Right fails. <laughs> And then, like, the sound from Carrie, where it's like, they're all gonna laugh at you! <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're all gonna laugh at you! Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then I'd try to get, like, some old whole movies where people berate you. It'd be great. Yeah, like you, know, little, you know how... Collage. Did your parents have, like, a lot of home videos of you being oh, shamed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they deleted all the other tapes when it was happy. They're like, nope, we need to only record the bad stuff. So they, they would record me literally 24 or 7 a day. Uh, like, a, like a Truman Show type situation. And then, <laughs> nice. Uh, but they would delete all of those t- SVHS tapes, very expensive, uh, and they would delete all of them where I had, you know, a happy moment or, to be honest, even just a neutral moment. <laughs> You're <laughs> just, just sitting, you know, just sitting having a sandwich. Like, yeah, having a sandwich. Maybe watching my shows. You know, like a ham and cheese sandwich tails. where you're like not that excited about it, but you're like, hey, it's food. Yeah, but it, like if they gave me something I didn't like, oh, they kept that tape. Oh. <laughs> like, Guys. Yeah, we're going to videotape every time we force you to eat pineapple and cottage cheese. It's a healthy snack. What? It's really gross. Yeah. <laughs> my mom's hypoglycemic, so she can't have sugar. So she made us eat all this crazy bullshit. Oh, yeah, that sounds like crazy bullshit. Yeah. So anyways, uh, so Peter, I'm glad you were able to... 
to fail a little bit. I'll note, by the way, that I have uh, a DVD that my parents gave me. They transferred their 8 millimeter of uh, family vacations in the 70s and 80s over to DVD. See, I, I was expecting maybe like they gave you their, their uh, still life charcoal drawings of your childhood. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, though. I'm, so yeah. wait, they, they like what? Does somebody get them transferred from 8 millimeter? Yeah, it's all no sound, of course. But, you know, it's interesting yeah. to see. That's awesome. Yeah. I bet you it has no, that is awesome. inherent, like, charm to it just because it's not, like, iPhone footage. Right. It's all square footage. I mean, it's not even good color, but it's, you know, kind of interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah. No, my uh, my parents have some of that of them as kids. Uh, but we, I remember watching them and being like, what do you think you guys are saying? <laughs> I feel like I feel like you spend the entire time watching it trying to solve a mystery. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, Barb, uh, do you think the Holocaust happened? Nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pr- yeah, probably. Like my parents, it was fifties and sixties Detroit. It's probably good they didn't have volume. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Be grateful for the soundless quality of yeah. the name. Oh, yeah, that's by the grace of God. Like, oh, my God, that was your position on drinking fountains, Grandpa? <laughs> oh. My family is mostly Southside German-Irish from the, going from the 20s forward, so probably the same damn thing. That's oh, my God. Chicago oh, Southside, yeah. Uh, so, we can't let those yeah. people into Bridgeport. <laughs> well, my parents, uh, as is tradition, uh, on my 18th birthday, sent me the video of my conception. And, you know, frankly, I like having home videos, but I think that one might not be one I'm keeping around. My parents did the same thing, but they didn't have a video camera at the time. So they're like, this is a reenactment from, <laughs> but it basically gets the, gets the whole thing across. Was, but, it, you was, know, it's a reenactment. How was the soundtrack? Oh, pretty good. A lot of Kiss from a Rhodes. Nice. <laughs> and just to confuse you, they hired, like, your two favorite porn actors when you were 16. Yeah. The video's like, there's like eight people in this video, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? We're, we're taking a best guess. Uh, when, I, when I was 16, it was still basically half scrambled Cinemax. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. What a natural, normal transition into. Uh, talking about Firefox, do you guys do you guys want to uh, talk about the worst Clint Eastwood movie of all time? No. Uh, do you guys want to talk about uh, Firefox? Firefox. Firefox. And we're back. We're right where we left it with Firefox talk. Uh, so, Peter, I think you are the 90-second recap. Um, I got a couple taglines. Alternate tagline. My first one is, uh, you'll believe a man can fly from stealing a jet. Uh, and then the second one is, the jet, one of the fastest things on planet Earth. Unlike this movie. <laughs> but you'll believe a man can help escalate the Cold War. Yeah. <laughs> um, you'll believe a man can think his thoughts right into a loaded gun. 
You'll believe that Clint Eastwood can speak Russian. A plane fueled by growls. <laughs> I love that he's an expert pilot. He figures out how to fly the plane immediately, and then he goes... And then at some point in the movie, he needs to be like, oh shit, yeah, I have to think in Russian. Never mind. I love that he has 20 minutes, too, where there's he's just flying the jet, and there's no, like... No one trying to stop him yet. So he just kind of like narrates everything he's doing. Oh, I gotta turn west here. Oh, oh <laughs> look at that. No, look at that gauge on. going off. There, oh, there is look. actually a reason oh. for that. He's lonely? <laughs> no, there's a narrative reason for it. They explained it earlier in the movie, but do your recap. Yeah, so <laughs> Mitch Firefox is uh, in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> Clint Eastwood is in Alaska. He is shell-shocked from his experiences in Vietnam. They show some Vietnam footage uh, of a plane bombing, and you think, like, maybe he's shell-shocked from bombing civilians. No, he was shell-shocked from being uh, in, like, a Hanoi Hilton situation. Kind of getting away from the military because of that. In typical uh, movie fashion, a guy finds him, goes... You know, I had to work really hard to find you. And he's like, uh, you know, I tried to make it hard for you and blah, blah, blah. They bring him to Washington to brief him on this plane called Firefox. It has a, a bevy of features make it superior to everything the U.S. has. For one, it's controlled by thought. Uh, two, I think it's the fastest plane. It goes like Mach 6 or something. Oh, so fast. It goes yes. to something that I don't think a I human mean, if, brain if can you know your, if you know your mocks, you know oh. this is a high one. Uh, it's radar resistant. It looks cool. Um, it's, well, Joseph, am I missing any other features? It's got, uh, I, don't, no. I don't know, about seat warmers. It's nice and black. Yeah. It's got, it's sort of a, <laughs> it comes in black. As Batman requested. Um, yeah, it's got it's got a bunch of features. It's a really fucking dope plane, guys. You just believe him. If you want yeah, this could change the tide of the war. Yeah. So this will escalate the war and then <laughs> so that both sides can have this awful weapon that should never have been invented. And then uh, Mitch uh, Firefox agrees to go steal the weapon. He goes behind enemy lines disguised as a drug dealer at first, uh, and then as, uh, I don't remember, another guy. Yeah, well, then, no, that is like a, a guy who, like, a plumber, I think. Yeah. and then at, But at some point, like, they're just like, oh, it's just a spy. Let's see how this plays out. Yeah, and then they go, you know, whatever. Uh, Milyarski is very patient and very cocky or something. He kind of, like, jumps from identity to identity. Eventually, they figure out kind of who he is. And with the help of this resistance and these group of resistance fighters, he steals the plane, flies to a place where he can get uh, new fuel. He gets new fuel. They send a second Firefox after him. And then he remembers that he can speak Russian and blows that Firefox up. Uh, and then uh, he gets the, the, the plane and... Um, no, and then and immediately then, the end. And immediately then, the and, end. And then the end. Um, Parmistan gets to be involved in the Star Wars missile program. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how I wanted Jim kind of crossover with this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. It, it, I think this was our first 90-second recap that was actually 90 seconds because it is it is kind of two hours and 15 minutes of guy goes to Russia, guy gets the plane, guy drives home. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the plot. It is, I mean, it is sort of – that is sort of reductionist in the same way Lord of the Rings is about like uh, they walk to a mountain they throw the fucking ring in. But it does kind of like when I was recapping it. But he doesn't like, bump up against anything. Like there's no – it's just him like in hiding a little bit. All of the sacrifices 
throughout the route are made by the resistance. The scientists that help him get gunned down, the guy that helps him, whose wife is in, uh, you know, Siberia or whatever, she's in Russian prison for being a dissident. Pavel, played by the great uh, Warren Clark. That is one of the really good performances in the movie. I kind of yeah. wish he had a more of a, um, you know, like in uh, Man from Uncle, how it's it's sort of evenly paired between the American and the Russian agent. Mm-hmm. I wish it was kind of like that, like those two played back and forth to each other's strengths. But instead, there's kind of just like one bonding scene between them and a lot of the Russian guy yelling at him. I, I, I wish I wish there was more of that because that guy is really charming. He yeah. is really good. So I, I want to kind of back up because I want I want Joseph to be able to kind of talk about, you know, his general thoughts, why I like this movie. And then we can kind of get into the nitty gritty. I'm going to say this. So the reviews at the time were not great. Roger Ebert really liked it. Um, but the general consensus, one review, I think, kind of put it perfectly, which is it's like James Bond without the fun locales, without the charismatic lead. Uh, without the uh, women and without any of the fun. And I think in a lot of ways that was kind of my experience in watching this movie where it's like it's stripped down, which we talked about earlier is kind of what Clint Eastwood likes to go for. But it strips away a lot of the interesting things. So you have a very nitty gritty story of just a guy who steals a plane and there, there never feels to be any dramatic heft. And – in a lot of occasions. And then the second part this movie's trying to do, which I think it does as lazily as any movie I've ever seen that's not a parody, which is tries to add some import in his Vietnam War background, which is which is so surface level, it barely factors in the story besides giving him a moment where he doesn't know if he'd go on. Like, if I had to see that fucking child uh, with their her face in flame from Vietnam again is like his little guilt – it's it's just it, there's nothing it's so surface level and it's so detracting. And so I think you have this like stripped down James Bond movie with a character who is supposed to be haunted, but that aspect of the story doesn't get any get doesn't get the time or the detail that it deserves. And then you have the the spy stuff that's taken away all the fun out of the proceedings. And you're just kind of left with this, like even the jet stuff. How many awesome 80s movies have a jet fight? And I don't think there's anything particularly, you know, out of the ordinary with the the two mind control jets going toe to toe. There's a little bit of flying. There's a little bit of shooting. And then one blows up and then Mm -hmm. the movie's over. So it just it feels like all the things it's trying to do, it's just missing it. And so, Joseph, I really want to hear. So why do you like this movie as much as you do? It obviously isn't aiming that high. Let's be let's I think we can all agree on that this movie is not aiming to be, say, Hunt for Red October, which is on a different level of uh, 80s, 90s techno thriller. This movie is aiming for a very particular level. And sometimes it hits it. Sometimes it doesn't. I think some of the times it hits it are based on some good character actors who are doing some really nice work. And I would totally agree. Jet pilot stuff is passable. Not great. Mm-hmm. Everything you've said about the flashbacks, 100% correct. They could drop every damn bit of that and it wouldn't make a damn difference to the, to the movie. No. 
Except maybe his, oh, he gets confused at the end and has to remember to uh, speak, to think in Russian. whoop de fucking do <laughs> it, it might allow him to be a little more charming. Like, it's still Clint Eastwood, but it's like Clint Eastwood with even, like, his modicum of charm stripped away so that he's like a broken man instead of like a... Um, an angry man or a I don't give a shit type man. Yeah, but one of the things I really like about this movie, and this is no irony at all, I like how he's a guy who has been recruited to take part in this essentially a spy mission, but he's an Air Force pilot who is basically being led along in the spy mission that he honestly has no idea what the hell he's doing half the time. He shows up in Moscow, gets pulled into the Moscow underground, and is basically getting dragged along by guys who are willing to do much worse things than he is for the cause. And he has no yeah. idea what this, the hell's going on. And I kind of like that. It's not a thing that you see that much in spy films where the spy doesn't seem to know what's actually going on. That, I think that's an interesting aspect of this movie. That is a charming fact about it, is that like he's surrounded by interesting characters dragging him along, and then he has to become a man of action for the second half where it becomes his movie because there's they can't fit a second person in the, the pilot seat with them. But <laughs> another issue is that the control room scenes are not all that interesting. I don't think that any of the actors in the control room particularly sell why this plane is so important other than command wants it and it's important. There isn't a great answer for why this plane is so is so important. It it, it is it can drop bombs. Yeah, it can drop bombs just like any other plane. Uh, by this point in the Cold War, we had an insane capability to nuke Russia from pretty much anywhere on the planet. We had installations yeah. in Iceland, in fucking everything. It, basically, a budding Poland, we had nukes. <laughs> we, like, we had nukes everywhere on the planet. So I don't to- entirely understand other than... They would have a slight edge on first strike capability. like So it doesn't really work as like a sober thriller to me because I, they never sell why this particular plane would be able to, like, are they planning on making 10,000 of them? <laughs> Let me answer to that, Pete. Okay. Um, in 19, this is a movie is from 1982, and there was a weird misperception that the Soviets were our equals globally in Europe. They certainly would have had an edge, pardon me, maybe not an edge, but in terms of conventional warfare in Europe, they might have uh, matched us. But in terms of global stuff, oh no, I mean, looking back, it, it, we all found out later, the Soviets were basically no match for us at all, except for the nuclear, except for the nuclear weapons. So it's really interesting seeing these movies from then. This also goes into Hunt for Red October, where suddenly they have, oh, a stealth submarine. This will change everything. Thing. And I think that's something that comes up where they think, oh, the Soviets are going to come up with this magic thing to overcome the U.S., which just wasn't going to happen in reality, but was a little bit of a paranoia thing in techno-thrillers of the era. The problem is, is that even if even if this, this jet was this amazing thing that could change the war, like, it's, it's superpowers that it has really good aim, which... You know, because the whole thing that they're selling is that imagine just being able to look at a target and being able to 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 shoot at it and get it every time because you want to hit it. Well, that's like just, you know, a guy with good aim, because as you can see from the jet fight, like they're able to still dodge 
stuff just because they're missiles and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I agree that with Peter. I actually want to circle back to something you said, Joseph, because I agree with you. The So it's, a, it's hard to detect, yes. I guess, is another capability of it. But, but like I was saying, I think it's like they would have first strike capability. But like at MAD is still a concept that everybody would be terrified of. That's another right. weird thing that like the Call of Duty games have ridiculous military plots that don't make any sense. <laughs> um, but... Uh, there is one thing that they do in some of them that makes sense where it's not the Russians. It's a rogue Russian pact because the Russians weren't monsters like their government perpetrated horrific acts. The Russians weren't monsters. They didn't want to see 200 million people be decimated in a nuclear strike. They didn't want their people, the whole country to burn. But like a rogue Russian faction might not care about, you know, the sheep in Moscow. So, like, that's a weird thing also where I'm like, mad is still a factor here. It just means the Russians might be able to hit us first. Well, yeah, and that's and that's the other thing. It doesn't really – why it's like a lesser version of a James Bond movie. In most cases, it's not always planetary destruction, but the James Bond movies usually have pretty high stakes. And most spy movies have pretty high stakes. Right. And this one, the stakes do feel – a little low. But before we get too far past it, Joseph, I agree with you. The best part of this movie is kind of how the how he's a very reluctant spy and how he's just he, – he doesn't understand what they're doing and he's put off by it. Um, and I want to I get into some specific moments that I really did like from that. But I think in general, I still have a problem with his arc because you – like you said, you mentioned that he – Says stuff like, I, I'm trying to learn what they're doing and what, what they're fighting for. But his arc is like realizing why someone would give their life for a cause they believe in. It's like, you were at fucking war. What do you, what do you think fighting in a war is? I, I, it just seems a little, it, it's, his arc is kind of unsatisfying even on that level because it's really hard for me to believe that a 50 year old man has never heard of the concept of someone willing to uh, die for a cause they believe in. I mean, if, if his arc was like, I'm finally willing to die for a cause I believe in, that makes more sense. But he is just like understanding that that concept exists. Right. And I would, I, and that's a, I would argue the worst part, single worst part of the movie is him trying to figure out your Jews you have a problem with the Soviets? Why oh, are you doing this? Oh my god. I'm like, oh my I think god. I, I think I wrote down his exact line because it is just it's fun eighties racism out of nowhere. <laughs> um Was oh, it you Jews are always what, trying to fight City Hall? No, he does say that, but it, he starts it by saying, uh, what is it with you Jews anyway? Ugh, <laughs> God. Honestly, I got to say, maybe this is just me projecting Eastwood's politics later, but that was that was the happiest he seemed in the movie. So that's the other weird. So that's the other weird thing is that he never seems to be swept up in the. Um, the dedication that these people have to the cause and the movie seems very very happy to sacrifice these people for the cause in a way that propaganda films very often do one of the hardest things to watch in the movie is the guy killing himself 
Yeah. And then it immediately is followed by Clint Eastwood zipping around the skies <laughs> and swelling military music. So, yeah. I have a point about that music. Oh, my okay. God. It is so so triumphant. <laughs> it is, and it's, it keeps just you're, – you're, Peter, I was going to say the exact same thing. The, the, the way that it's juxtaposed with the, like, most likable human character in the movie whose wife has been taken from him and he's the one who's like, I'm willing to die for what I believe in. Clint Eastwood races off in the Firefox. He puts a fucking gun to his temple, and then it cuts to like the Rocky theme. <laughs> like it is, it is so jarring that it's almost uh, it borders on parody. That's one thing that Rocky Four, a very bad movie, has over uh, this movie is that like I kind of understand what Rocky's up to. He's like they want to have a moral victory against the Soviet Union, like. People are feeling down in this war. Like, we need to have, like, you know, something to get the people excited about. And this, I'm like, now both sides are going to be able to nuclear bomb each other really fast and really hard. Slightly Now both faster. people are going to be really, really good at genocide. <laughs> All right. Sorry, Joseph. What did, you, what did you want to say about that scene? Because it's, it's insane. You summed it up completely with the music. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> I like this movie, but... The music juxtaposition of, like, I've forgotten how jarring it is. It almost yeah. feels darker than any other thing they could have done. I, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for Clint Eastwood's political stuff because I don't think he has gone as nuts as Charlton Heston did. He's not an NRA, NRA guy, for instance. He's just, I think he's, he calcified at some point. Yeah, I think he for sure. I think he for sure is not as insane a Republican as we made him out to be in the post-American sniper controversy. I don't think he's really like that crazy of a, of a Republican, but he is definitely a gung ho pro military dude. He's not like you yeah, said. He's not he, even a pro gun dude. He's not like a. He didn't have like a. A Charlton Heston moment where he was like, every American should be like me in my in my movies. Like he was more of just like the you know, the world needs a strong military presence, especially in the 1980s is what more. Of yeah, I, th- I think he's a little nationalistic. Yes, I think I think that's yes, fair. That's, and, I think and that's re- fair. And repu- I, I think if you quizzed him now, he would probably be OK on a lot of social issues. If you believe in nationalism, you're going to gravitate towards the Republican Party. So while the 2012 election was pretty uh, uncomfortable and jarring for a lot of us, even knowing he was a Republican with his convention speech, it's not like he was out there for Trump. So that's like the mild credit you can give him. Yeah, I mean, he he stumped for the ERA. He uh, stumped for uh, uh, pro-choice. He was for same-sex marriage. He's, he, he's a complicated man. How about that? Yeah. And I think that's a good... Uh, way to sum him up politically because I don't want to just reduce him to hardcore Republican because I don't I think movies like Dirty Harry might lead you to that uh, that sort of persuasion but I don't think that's entirely fair based on his actual political action over the past 50 years right also uh, you know I just want to say right now i mostly judge him as the mayor of uh, carmel california and he gave carmel california uh ice cream back so i gotta say clint eastwood he's 
He's a good guy. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> there was a ban in one of the weird bands when he became mayor of Carmel, California, or Carmel by the Sea, that there was an ice cream ban in town. It was this weird antiquated law, and he came in, uh, he filed for his mayorship, like, I don't know, six hours or something before the deadline. And uh, one of his acts was to, uh, yeah, loosen up restrictions on new buildings. And he also got uh, ice cream legalized in town. It was a town of like 4,500 people. <laughs> I only knew that he built a new library and that's about it. He built a new library. He built a new library and like tourism boomed for a lot of shit to come to Carmel. And, um, and a lot of people were not totally happy with the changes he made to the town. Peter's always like, I think Clint Eastwood is going to be remembered for being the mayor of this small town. And I'm like, 100%. Peter, you fucking idiot. It's going to be that gorilla song. <laughs> 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 and nothing else, you know. I have a question for you guys, uh, since, you know, we've gone completely off the script at this point. <laughs> Leaving outside Warren Clark is Pavel, who we're all agreed is the best guy in the movie. Yes. Uh, do you have a character actor that you would like to, uh, you know, highlight in this movie? Actually, I, I do. I was going to save it for some notes at the end. But, yeah, let's let's do a segment on it because there is a fucking ton of them. Um, I'm going to go Thomas Hill, who is old guy from Bookstore in NeverEnding Story 1 and 2, who took me the longest to figure out where he was from. And I did have to go to IMDb because I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Uh, who does he play in Firefox again? He's like, yeah, he's like the angry old dude at the beat. One one of the many angry old dudes at the beginning. Oh, with the uh, with, with the mustache and the glasses. He's got the mustache, yeah. But it, yes. I was like, who this this movie is like chock full of actors who sort of look familiar because they were in one scene in one movie you watch. <laughs> <laughs> There's at least five people who are in Midsummer Murders, as I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, who do you have? Uh, I have Alan Tilvern, who is uh, the Sky Marshal, who's the one who's constantly butting up against uh, Brezhnev throughout the movie. And Alan Tilvern, everybody knows from one movie. He is... Empire Strikes Back. No, that's Ratzenberger. Uh, yes, Rat John Ratzenberger is in this movie. He's in this. Yeah, he's in the. He's in the sub. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, Alan Silver is R.K. Maroon in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I don't remember who that is in this movie. No, but the guy who plays like Admiral Piet from Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi is in this movie too. He's like the main Russian guy. Uh, shit. Uh, who the fuck is that guy? Um, Admiral Piet. It's. Um, uh, Kenneth Coley, that's him. Yes, he's in this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he plays a pretty big part, too. Right. Oh, so Kenneth Coley is the very stern-looking Russian guy that's pursuing him basically up until uh, the the uh, higher-ups come in, and then he disappears from the movie, presumably right. to Siberia, right? Exactly, yes. Um, <laughs> I really like the guy that one-ups him a lot. The guy that comes in is like, all right, listen up, motherfucker. The whole second half of this movie's mine. And it's uh, Stefan Schnabel, who plays the first secretary. Uh, he's he's the guy who's just like, he gets on the radio to, to Clint Eastwood. He's like, we just want the plane back. We just want the plane back. Just bring the plane back. I can't promise that, like, you know, it's going to be a great journey for you, but... Uh -huh. 
<laughs> just get the plane back. Uh, I really like I really like him a lot. I think he's a nice form of administrative menace. He's cocky, but he's not like this frothing monster roams the movie. He's just this like dude who's like, we put a lot of money into this and it's going to be very fucking embarrassing for me if this doesn't go well. So uh, can we just do this? Can we do this? Like, I like that sort of role in a sober movie like this. Yeah, that does bring us to that that third act. So that third act is half the movie. It's half the movie. The the last 45 minutes, about 75% of the movie is with these Russian control room people. Like, it's so weird to to switch your point of view characters, essentially, for the, for the last 45 minutes of your movie to the antagonists, and almost none of them you've ever seen before. Right. Just a weird, it's a weird choice, is all I'm saying. And I will say the movie uh, kind of falls down on introducing a lot of them. It's like, I have to be looking at the cast list to go, okay, which of them is... I mean, obviously, uh, the, like you say, Stefan Schnabel is playing uh, Brezhnev, the first secretary, premier. I, I always get confused as to what the hell the leader of the Soviet Union is supposed to be called at that point. First secretary, I guess. I actually have to, you know, uh, look at my notes and go, which one is which guy in this? And I mean, you're not... It's so many actors who, like I said, I just recognize... I would never be able to tell you their names in a million years. Right. They're mostly British and German actors playing Russian. It's like Andropov is played by Wolf Collar, who has played every goddamn German possible because he was born in like 48 and has moved up through the ranks through the years. Uh, people who don't know who Wolf Collar is, he is the tall German dude in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know who oh, he is. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. in this movie. Yes. He's got that. He keeps on keeping on. Right, he's got that very particular face. I think he might have retired at this point. He's in his late 70s or something. But he is, if you look at his IMDb, he has worked his way through the German ranks over, like, six decades of working. <laughs> Let's get back to Ratzenberger for a sec. <laughs> Do you think that Clint Ace would cast him because he was like, look, in 35 years, people might think I'm a crazy conservative. So I'm going to put John Ratzenberger in my movie <laughs> to distract from that. Ratzenberger, I kind of love that he keeps showing up in these weird European productions from the era because he was living in London at the time. And he was part of this small crew of American actors who would keep popping up in uh, British productions like uh, Empire Strikes Back or... No, wait, is he in Empire or is he in Star Wars? John Ratzenberger? Yeah. He's in Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back? Yeah. No way. Way. I, I don't buy this at all. That's insane. Like, I mean, if you're like, if you're like, oh, yeah, he's a stormtrooper who doesn't speak. Fine. Rebel, <laughs> he's uh, in Empire Strikes Back as Rebel Force Major Derlin. You gotta be fucking kidding me. I'm not kidding you. Brent Durlin was an officer in the Rebel Alliance and the New Republic. He, I mean, I'm assuming there's a whole novel about him. Uh, Republic. <laughs> the son of Senator Galen Durlin. You don't remember this guy? Durlin was born on the planet Tisharan sometime before the fall of the Old Republic. You don't remember this guy? One of the earliest assignments in the Alliance Army had him stationed at Yavin Holy Base serving shit. under General John No, I'm, I'm looking. <laughs> no, now, now that you said all that, I remember. Also, what helped is the picture I looked up on, uh, on Google. He had but lines. I had a. Uh, I used to play the <laughs> nerd alert. <laughs> um, I used to play the customizable card game 
uh, Star Wars, like, came out, like, a say, 7th or 8th grade, like, the Magic the Gathering, but with Star Wars stuff, and I guarantee I had a card with him on it. Yeah, if I recall correctly, Durlin's group eliminated a few guards and stole a single landing barge, blasting away from the planet <laughs> and passed an Imperial Storm Destroyer its orbit before the Imperials knew what happened, if I recall correctly. You know, another fun... Another fun fact about uh, John Ratzenberger in Firefox, um, during the scene where Clint Eastwood uh, has a fake mustache, that's Ratzenberger's mustache that he lent to Clint Eastwood. (laughs) That's so nice. He probably couldn't work the entire production, right? I mean, it's John Ratzenberger. He's got five, six mustaches on him at all times. Oh, I figured John Ratzenberger was a Samson figure. If If he loses his mustache... That uh, he's incapable of acting, talking to women. Um, he actually can't have a solid bowel movement. Let's let's do a quick check. Uh, Joe, yo, you ever you ever grew a little mustache? Uh, I'm sorry, little mustache is in a Hitler mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, let me let me cover all the bases. Like just, uh, just, just, uh, just, just a bushy mustache. Yeah, like Stalin. Never grow any sort of mustache, but like with no beard. No. Peter, what's your mustache sitch? My mustache sitch is uh, mostly bad. Yeah, mine's terrible. I, I don't think I could. I didn't shave for the whole time I was in Canada and uh, a week before, and I came home and I was like, I cannot be seen like this by anyone. <laughs> <laughs> only Canadians. I can only be seen by Canadians with this. Yeah, getting back to my point about Ratzenberger, he was living in London at the time, and he was in a bunch of these weird things that are uh, like American productions that did uh, London work. So he's also in the first two Superman movies. That guy. Yes, if you've seen Superman 2, the whole part where the... Uh, yeah, I think we covered it on this show. Yeah, where the whole part where Zod uh, and his uh, guys attack the guys on the moon. He's one of the mission control guys. Wow. Oh, that explains why there's a homophobic joke at that part. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. Hold on. How many Ratzenberger movies have we done? So, we yeah. also, he's also in Motel Hell. Yeah, We should definitely do Ratzenberger Month. Oh, I mean, just, it sounds the like, greatest hits. It sounds like we're doing Ratzenberger show. Every show. Every, every, been, we've done every episode of Cheers individually. <laughs> you know, we did do that. Nice. So yeah. here's a here's a nice thing. In Superman Superman one, he plays first controller. In Superman two, he plays controller number one. Oh. You think they're the same guy in disguise? <laughs> I like to think they're canonically different characters. They're completely different because in Superman one he's a missile controller for the whole missile going off and you know, going to go and strike California and uh, send it into the sea. And in Superman two he's a Houston missile controller for a mission on the moon oh god that's sad that i know this <laughs> it is true though i wasn't i wasn't kidding that is the part of superman 2 where they throw out like a casual homophobic joke where they're like oh yeah i'm just hanging out here with my husband up here in the space station it's like what the fuck it's <laughs> superman it's it was because we talked about it at length on our episode of like god even a fucking superman movie in the 80s is like let's still just give it to gay people because they suck yeah <laughs> like it's the worst. Yeah. uh it's the worst okay so what what else do we have to talk about for the old Firefox? What do you guys think about the uh, actual flying effects stuff? It's it, I, I don't know if it was that cutting edge for the time. Uh, I'm like, it's kind of okay now. I think it's pretty good. It kind of uses that thing where, you know, it's obviously superimposed. So it has like that kind of black film around the edges of the, of the jet as it's flying through like bright scenes because you can. Uh, and that's kind of how you could tell. 
for like a movie from 1982, a lot of times when it was like poorly superimposed, it was real obvious and it stood out. I think this movie did a really good job of making it not stand out at all. Yeah. Okay. Peter? Like, if you if you knew if you knew where to look, you could be like, that's clearly superimposed. Right. But I think uh, one 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 area where Clint Eastwood does kind of shine is that he does a good job of cutting back and forth between, uh, you know, the jet speeding along from like a third person perspective, and then the first person perspective of like how fast they're going, and um, you know, he uses the he uses the third person perspective judiciously. And I think there's actually one really good shot when the second MiG just kind of drifts in behind him. I think that's actually a a really good menacing shot. It's like he can't see it on the radar, so it just kind of drifts in behind him and kind of catches him by surprise. And I'm like, that's actually pretty well done. It's purely shot by shot. It doesn't have the sort of um, Star Wars compositing quality. But then again, I think it might be harder to shoot against clouds than it is against, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, the, the vast void of space. But it doesn't have that Star Wars quality where you're like, oh, this feels like a World War II dogfighting movie. Um, mm-hmm. The best shots of it are essentially, um, they probably just shot a, a helicopter or a plane from the nose cone and shot it through a valley when he says, let's see how fast this can go, um, you know, to burn off all that extra fuel he has. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And, and uh, but that is the best shot uh, in the plane, which is literally just a normal plane shot that they sped up. And it works really well. But some of the compositing is really rough because it's something kind of like uh, staticky about the two layered over each other uh, in certain shots. Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not as well put together as something like say Empire Strikes Back or the uh, or the Attack in the Death Star and Return of the Jedi, which I still think is probably the. I feel like you're really comparing to some high bars. Like if you're like, look, obviously it's not as good as one of the best examples of special effects <laughs> in the '70s and '80s, but uh, you know, I think this is decent special effects. I, I think the special effects are decent. Um, I like when he lands on. I like the submarine scene where they're refueling, and you know all that kind of looks good and has some some tension to it. I just think the actual dog fighting scenes are really staid and kind of you know workmanlike, which I guess maybe goes to the whole Clint Eastwood thing in general. Like it's just right. here they're shooting at each other, and they cut to Clint Eastwood's face, and he's stressed out, and they cut to the Russian guy, and he looks not too happy. He's gonna do something to that Clint. And uh, and then it's like it's over really quickly, and the movie just then fucking ends. It's like, well, plane explodes, credit. <laughs> I guess we did it. One thing I want to talk about is I think the universe and its infinite wisdom made it impossible to search for this uh, movie on the internet. Oh God, yes. <laughs> Which I think is kind of a big fun middle finger that Mozilla did to Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. I didn't look this up. Joseph, do you know, did they take Firefox, the internet browser that we've all used for work and porn, uh, and did they steal the name from this movie? I don't know. I really don't. What other situations are there where the term Firefox? A Native American Southwest thing? It was originally named Phoenix. And uh, then they renamed it due to trademark issues, and then they renamed it Firebird, which apparently there was also a Firebird, and then they just decided to call it Firebird. Firefox, which apparently is the nickname of the Red Panda. I was going to say, do you think that the browser is a good adaptation of the film? 
<laughs> I think so. I, the problem is when you type Firefox into Firefox, searching for the movie Firefox, uh, one of your kids explodes. <laughs> <laughs> It would be a fun, like, internet browser prank is if, like, all the other browsers made it so that if you search for Firefox on a competing browser, it's this movie that's the first result. <laughs> um, even though no one is looking for. It would be great if uh, more browsers were actively hostile to you. That's <laughs> what you're saying. Well, I heard uh, Mozilla's new one is called Magnum Force, so they're really sticking with a... <laughs> It's better than blood work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, right. Uh, Let's just load up the old true crime. (laughs) This is very much a dad movie. And I actually thought about that coming to talk about with you, Joseph. Uh, Not because, like, I think of you like a dad, because I'm sorry to disappoint you. I don't. But it it was the same feeling as when your dad picks a movie for you to watch and he's kind of psyched about it. And then you'll watch it and, like, he asked you your thoughts and you didn't really like it. And you're like, that kind of feeling of like, oh, yeah, no, I don't want to. I mean, my dad picked out a movie for us to watch. I don't want to. That was special. It's like going on a podcast with your dad after he showed you some, like, World War II thriller that you didn't like. And, like, now I got to tell him for two hours that I was disappointed by his movie. But seriously, I, I see your point there. This is kind of a dad movie. It's kind of a middle-of-the-road 80s techno thriller. This actually might be before techno thriller even was a thing. I was working at Barnes & Noble when techno thriller was an actual category for books. Oh, holy cow. Yeah, I mean, it was totally the Tom Clancy, Michael Connelly, um, Vince Flynn, that type of stuff. This is totally the movie you're, you're flipping through, like basic cable channels in the 90s on a Sunday afternoon and, like, this is what was playing. Right. I feel like this is one of the Eastwood movies that is completely forgotten. Like, nobody talks about this one. And it made money, too. It's it's not like one that, like, was forgotten because nobody saw it. it it's People saw it. Yeah, it doubled its budget. That's pretty yeah. decent. Yeah. And also, Clint oh. Eastwood tends to come in on time and under budget, so that mm-hmm. helped. Mostly because he hit 5 o'clock and it's time to go to the golf course. Yeah, exactly. You, there are there are there any scenes in this that you feel like are one takers that you could have used a second take on? Probably him masturbating in the shower. <laughs> Jesus, yes. God, the face, the face, the face he was giving. You know what? I don't think so. I feel like, and I don't mean to disparage the style of the movie. It's a very workmanlike where you have the scenes that. They work. Uh, he probably took a second stab at a couple of the subway scenes, and that's about it. Because they have they have moving parts. I do like that Joseph has reappropriated workmanlike to mean that the movie works. <laughs> Highest compliment <laughs> when you say workmanlike. That is my oh. take on workmanlike. I will never take workmanlike as a criticism of, as a, of a movie. No, I don't think it's always a criticism. Um, I think the way I'm applying it here kind of is. But uh, I do want to talk about a scene that I really loved. If the movie had more of these kind of clever twists, and it it kind of goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning, Joseph, where you're like, the best part of this movie is like, they couldn't hire a spy because all the spies were being tracked by the KGB. So anyone with any sort of spy experience was not going to make it into the country. They also needed the pilot. Well, exactly. So they need a pilot, but they need a pilot who hadn't been active in a while. Right. And so this is a guy with like no training, no recent training, no spy experience, and they're throwing him in there. And one of the best parts that I wish the movie had done more with and focused on that more than like he was still affected by the Vietnam War 
was that kind of everyone knows he's incompetent and pushing him around through the process until he just gets to the jet and then go do your thing. And there is a moment where he's in the park and it's it's the Russians are, are tracking him because he's still an American and he's of suspicion. And he meets his like crew that he's going to team up with. And one of those guys is a guy who at first you don't even really connect looks like Clint Eastwood, but then they start putting a mustache on him or they start like slicking back hair and changing glasses. And then they just beat him to death. This, this guy that Clint Eastwood thought was going to be part of the team. They beat him to death in the park uh, in his face so that no one can recognize him, but it still looks like this other guy, the Russians know, and they change their passport stuff. And, and I think that's a, a very clever scene, but also a really harrowing one where it's like, this was a guy who was just there because he looked slightly like Clint Eastwood and they could kill him to make the Russians lose the trail. And I think that is a wonderful moment. I don't need to put any stipulations on it. Uh, I think it's a very clever scene. I think it's well executed. I think Clint Eastwood with the shock of not knowing what's going on while they, his, his context, the people that are supposed to help him just mercilessly beat someone to death uh, in the face. And then he's kind of shuttled and he's like lost and scared and doesn't know what to do. And then he, when he's on, he ends up making a mistake as a result where he's like, well, fuck, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to kill this KGB agent who's just kind of mildly grilling me because I I don't know what to do. I don't know the rules. No one's explained it to me. And the fucking craziest shit just happened. And someone who I thought was on my team just wound up, wound up dead in a park. And like that 10-minute stretch I think is really, really good. And it's just the rest of the movie doesn't follow up on that. It doesn't have as many clever turns like that. And it just doesn't hit those beats as well. But – yeah, that, that 10 minutes is like a perfect stretch of movie. Aaron, if I can add into that, the guy that they are beating up, that is the guy that Clint Eastwood's character is pretending to be, the heroin dealer that he got into the country. Yeah. And what I love is that the guy playing him, I actually looked him up because I'm like, okay, that's kind of interesting. It's a very small part. His name is George Orison, died in uh, 2001. He, for a long time, he was a stunt guy on a about every Eastwood thing you could possibly imagine, up through, like, uh, Space Cowboys, which I think might have been the last one. He was a stunt double for Clint Eastwood in, like, a billion things. So using which him makes sense. Was, was pretty great. But it's not – they don't look enough like that it's so obvious that you're like, this guy looks like fucking Clint Eastwood. It's, it's when they start making some of those changes so that his facial features are, don't stand out as much. But like the shape of his skull and his height and his posture starts uh, getting emphasized more that you go, oh, holy shit. They do kind of look alike enough to buy the time that they're looking for. Right. And by the way, if you look at a picture of George Orson, he kind of looks like a weird mix of Clint Eastwood and Kurt Russell. It's an odd thing. The perfect man. Yeah. <laughs> you stole uh, my favorite moment in the movie, which is the uh, the scene where they just brutally beat down the, the drug dealer. Uh, and, you know, the drug dealer clearly thinks, like, something else is happening. Like, maybe they told the drug dealer that that he was being smuggled out instead of uh, Clint Eastwood. It's a great scene. Uh, my favorite in that ilk is another thing that hints at what kind of movie it could have been, which is the bathroom scene, where after he gets intimidated by a KGB agent, he kills him, and then 
the the moment I'm talking about is when his Russian counterpart comes in and says, like, you fucking idiot. He was just fucking with you. Like, that's part of his deal. That's what he does. Your papers were in order. My papers were in order. There, there's a lot of great moments in that first half that hint at a darker movie that's, like, basically asking, is the cost of all these lives worth the, the weapon? Is the weapon that good? And then the second half of the movie is like, fuck yeah, it's that good. <laughs> um, also, Peter, it, it hints at a movie that takes a concept seriously that is almost always only used for farce. Like, the idea of the non-spy being forced to be a spy is like a Lampoon movie. It's like a Naked Gun type, you know? It's of that ilk of... It's it's usually played for comedy. So the idea of playing it straight, I'm sure it has been done before, but... This was a good opportunity for that, and they just – they didn't really have that thread. They just had some moments within the thread. Yeah, so there's there's like beads that sort of hint at what the final product is going to be. And then when the final product arrives, you're like, wait, what? what is this? <laughs> that would be probably – that. those two moments are probably the most notable for me in the entire product. I think that the second half is just not that thrilling to me, and it kind of goes for this gung-ho nationalism. And so all my favorite moments in the early half before the best character in the movie shoots himself, he really, you know, shot the movie in the head. Jesus. <laughs> it, was a, it was a situation where he held the movie up next to his head and he shot through his own head into the movie. God. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I think we're kind of on final thoughts. Um, I think it, it's only fair that Peter and I go first because we do want Joseph to kind of have the last word on I this I would movie. love for Joseph to have the final word on this, on this bad boy. So uh, so I'll say, uh, you know, I, I think I've kind of got the sense that I that it's it's kind of dour, it's overlong, it it just doesn't have enough uh, flair to recommend where it's it's almost it's too competent and too rote of material to really make it stand out in any way and it just kind of drags a little. Um having said that, um I am really happy that Joseph brought it on the show because this is Exactly why we wanted to do Guest Request Month, which is obviously wrapping up with this episode, even though I'm sure we're going to do it again in the future, because it allows other people that aren't Peter and I, uh, who have a very similar taste in movies, to to pick stuff that um, maybe some stuff we would have done anyways, and we're excited to talk about it. We, we get to fit it into a month that it you know that was hard to find a perfect spot for it, but. Also to bring on movies that we never would have done. Firefox is an example. Urge was another example. And, you know, Peter and I always enjoy talking about uh, different types of movies and experiencing different types of movies. And even though obviously, you know, I kind of – I for both Joseph's sake and our podcast sakes and everything else, I wish I would have liked this a little better. I will say this is a – genre of movie that we probably never would have touched without someone bringing it on and um hearing from someone that appreciates that genre in a way that i don't just because i haven't seen as many examples and it's just you know i i'm a little younger and so i wasn't really raised so much in the whole cold war stuff to the to the probably the level that joseph and a lot of other people were so you know, obviously not a movie that worked for me really in any capacity, but one I'm very glad that you brought on the show, Joseph. 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it's another, this is a perfect example of why we wanted to do this month is uh, it's every movie we've done so far and whether or not the actual uh, guests would agree with this or not is it's up to their own debate has been sort of representative of the, the wonderful guests that we brought on. So this movie is like a previous movie I was just, dis- we discussed in the show. I think this movie is sort of a neither fish nor, nor fowl thing where it's neither gung-ho sort of James Bondy like you know Russians are pure evil and uh, you know let's watch our you know one of our patriots go in there and you know steal some of their shit uh, it's not that but it's also not quite the sober grounded compelling like it's not the Tom Clancy-esque thriller that it thinks it is where it's like taut beats on taut beats and every step of the way you're like oh shit I know what the movie's about to say and it's it's not really critical of the U.S. for sending people on these missions it's not really critical of you know the the U.S. for helping escalate a cold war it's it's none of that it's kind of nationalistic but yeah, and so it kind of falls in this weird propaganda thing in the middle where it thinks it's realistic, but it's kind of not. And so I think it's most interesting as a, a product of the thinking of the era and as uh, it does show what thrillers looked like and what the American public wanted to see in a thriller in the early 80s that wasn't this big, ridiculous, gaudy neon thing. Um, so that's where it kind of it differentiates itself from what movies like this would be five years from then. Um, yeah, Joseph, do you have any final thoughts to sort of wrap this up? Maybe offer final defense. My final thoughts <laughs> is I would never claim that this is a top level techno thriller of the 80s. Um, I actually have a top level of this, but a movie that I considered bringing. But I'm like, you know what? I want to go with the uh, big flashy uh, plane movie first. Maybe next time, uh, or, you know, for all I know, you guys have both seen this. Have either of you seen The Fourth Protocol? No. Ah, already. No, I stopped at three. The Fourth Protocol is... <laughs> Please leave that entire silence in there, Peter. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> the Fourth Protocol is what uh, what if Pierce Brosnan, be, when he was still in that weird period where he wasn't getting to play Bond, what if he was playing a Russian villain? And Michael Caine's the hero. It is a weird little uh, spy film of 1987. It's I don't even want to say what the hell is happening in it because it's really worth going in completely blind on it. It's a very solid uh, thriller from the time. <laughs> I think that's like the common theme that runs through Pierce Brosnan movies based on just watching Urge, which is try not to know anything about it. I have thoughts on Urge, people. Let's get into that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's just so great that we got so many people to watch this fine film, a film that is good. And everyone loves. Oh, uh, that's enough thoughts about Urge. Joseph, thanks for sharing your love. <laughs> the weird thing is, I actually think Danny Masterson's kind of good in it. I know. It's a- what the fuck are you talking about? All right, about? next week is going to be Joseph Finn on Urge. <laughs> uh, Urge Radio. I- 
it, it's funny because everyone that has watched it and reached out to us, I do kind of get the sense that they all would like to immediately appear on a podcast and talk about Urch, which is how I felt after watching it. So maybe the, the, maybe at some point we'll do like uh, we'll have Bridget, we'll have Joseph, we'll have these other people on that like want to talk about yeah, Urch. And we'll do we'll all redo. sit in a quiet church basement and drink shitty coffee and talk about Urch. <laughs> the yeah. yacht is named Medigo. This is the kind of movie that thinks the naming the yacht that is bringing the apocalypse to the city and calling it Medigo is clever. It's not clever. We all know. I mean, it's, it's pretty Armageddon. clever in that I just I just got it right now. <sighs> you explained it to me. Jesus, so frustrating that movie. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, you can also take that. You can take that sound bite and cut it into to make it seem like Joseph doesn't care about Firefox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys. Okay. Uh, uh, so yeah, uh, thank you so much, Joseph. This is a really fun app. Thank you for having me. I'm so, I, I honestly am sorry that you didn't like the movie more, uh, but I fully acknowledge it's not the greatest of the 80s techno thrillers, <laughs> but I think it's an interesting one to talk about. Yeah, and I, I agree with that 100%. I'm not sorry, because this was a really fun episode, and we had yeah. to watch the movie to have the episode. And also, Urge is only like 82 minutes, so it all balances out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, no, we didn't watch, like, a 14-minute movie this month to balance out the 400 <laughs> minutes. That's Firefox. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, and part of the reason, obviously, Joseph, uh, is your fifth time. You're going to be back uh, many more times. You're always fun to have on. Uh, and it's, it is good that, you know, uh, that we... Uh, that you brought a movie that we didn't care for, but at least we feel comfortable enough to not have to spend two hours uh, pretending we like it because we don't want to hurt your feelings. Right. <laughs> Joseph! What uh, what do you have to promote? Um, well, basically these days I just have to promote my uh, movie site that is basically uh, josiesmovies.blogspot.com. That's where I occasionally put up stuff. Uh, lately I put up my ramblings yesterday of what the fuck I thought about Mother... Mother... Uh, which is just me going on about how I think it's the funniest movie of the year. <laughs> it's got the exclamation point though, so it's Mother... Mother! I think it's hilarious, and I don't mean this in any some kind of weird, ironic way. I think it's funny as hell. I don't even care if Aronofsky intended it to be a comedy. It's funny as hell. I got raised super I got raised uh, pretty damn Catholic, so all the uh, creation myth and biblical stuff I got, and I think it's funny as hell. I, uh, I'm on, yeah, I'm on a little bit of a blackout on Mother, but I am going to try to see it in theaters because it's just one of those, like... I know big parts are going to get spoiled to, uh, for me if I wait four months. Oh, I totally recommend it. I think it's like a four out of five star. I'm not, I'm not sure it's going to be one of the best of the year, but I uh, I really liked it. And also mention, uh, check out back episodes of Try It, You Like It. Uh, Joseph's uh, on uh, hiatus podcast. Yeah, defunct. pretty much. Uh, let, let's call it severely on hiatus. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I've I've listened to a bunch of those episodes. Uh, thankfully, they are not they're not really time based. They cover uh, movies, books, TV shows, stuff like that, uh, and they're all really good. So I would definitely recommend checking out checking out that back catalog. And we'll have a link to both um, both his blog and uh, and the podcast uh, in the show notes. So thank you again, Joseph. Now Peter, holy shit, we get to transition. Into our favorite month of the year. That's Booktober 2017. Booktober 2017. Spook. Spook. Oh. Spook. There it is. 
Yeah. <laughs> Peter and Aaron back again. Check it, direct it. Let's watch some horror movies. <laughs> uh, so our theme for the month is... Slugfest. We're doing Slugfest. It was Slugfest um, 2017. And we are going to kick it off with the most appropriate movie. Next week, we're doing Slugs. I don't know if I like my line readings. What do you think? <laughs> how, how would... Slugs. We're doing the movie Slugs. Yeah, well, you have to say it like as if your jaw is becoming a slug. Slugs. We're starting with the one movie this month that I haven't seen before. This is going to be... Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I've seen I've seen all the movies uh, this this month. I'm sorry. But that's fine because they're all... For the guy who also directed Pieces? Sure. Is it by so, the dude who directed Pieces? I haven't... Oh, I haven't done my research yet, Joseph. It's not until next week. Science <laughs> research doesn't begin. Juan Simone, who directed Slugs in Pieces. Pieces is a what? fucking insane movie, which makes... This make... All right, all right, Joseph, you just made me doubly excited to watch this movie, because Pieces is a nutty movie. I've never seen Slugs, but I know it's the uh, same guy. And he, his other one movie is, if you've ever seen Mr. Science Theater, as we've discussed before, he directed Pod People. Oh, uh, that's right. I did I did notice that. Um, so, Trumpy... Portent of Doom. Uh, <laughs> so then we're doing uh, Night of the Creeps. We're doing Slither with Morgan Rennes, and we're doing uh, David Cronenberg Shivers with Beth Powder. So two new guests, and then we're doing a Halloween surprise episode that you guys are going to have to wait to find out what it is because we haven't fully decided yet. These are three out of four that I have not seen, and I need to. I've seen Slither. I haven't seen Slugs, obviously, uh, but the rest are all movies that I think are uh, great Halloween time watching. They're fun. Yep. They're funny. Uh, they're goofy. Shivers is a strange movie that I've gone back and forth on over the years, so I'll be interested to see what I feel like returning to it, because at first uh, I hated it, and then I liked it. Hmm. I hated it. So maybe this, maybe this, there's some sort of David Cronenbergian slug that got into my brain that made me like the movie Shivers, but uh, we'll see. Well, we're going to find out. And then also worth talking about, um, we are going to be doing our, for all of our opening segments, starting next week, we're going to be doing our uh, Spooktober recaps. So that is where uh, Peter and I both have lists. We're going to post them um, in the show notes for this episode and definitely talk them. Well, actually not in this episode, but uh, next week's episode. Uh, talking about our planned watches uh, for for the month of October. We try to at least watch 31 new-to-us horror movies. Last year, Peter got, I think, 117. Yeah, about 100, 117. <laughs> so I got about 39. Uh, Peter got 8,000. Um, and <laughs> how many did you get last year? I hit 58 last year. Holy shit, that's a lot. You ate f- f- 58 new or 58 total? 49 new. Okay. Yeah, because I was like at 44, I think, total. And I thought, I mean, which is pretty impressive, I felt like, for me. I'm shooting for kid, 30 this year. It's going to be hard as fuck to do 50 again. No, I'm, I'm shooting for at least 35. My my pared down list is at 56 right now. So I have, I have some options. So actually, and that's one thing we're going to be discussing next week. So next week for Slugs, it's not, it's going to be October for the listeners. It's not going to be October for us. Uh, it'll be September when we record it. So we're going to do our opening segment next week and kind of talk about what our lists lo- look like, what we're excited to watch, any other kind of um, 
theater trips or special screenings we're planning, that kind of stuff uh, throughout the month, Uh, how we created our list, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, the next four weeks and into the first week in November, we'll kind of be talking about all the movies that uh, we watched you know, kind of a quick go see it, don't go see it. Here's what I liked. Here's our favorites. And then we'll, uh, on the, the first episode of uh, November, which will be Night of the Living Dead, so still a perfect uh, episode to, to talk about this with, we'll kind of be be recapping our favorites and the worst ones we watch. So I think P- Peter and I talk probably, or I should say message on a daily basis. I think during October, it becomes like eight times a day. <laughs> <laughs> it's not available a lot. Of- uh, so yeah, so we're going to be talking about all that stuff over the course of October. Uh, we're going to be posting a lot on our Facebook uh, group. So if you, if you haven't liked it, like it and if not uh we really wanted to kind of be group participatory uh for you guys to talk about what you guys are watching and maybe even recommend stuff because these lists are not set in stone and we always want to uh to to hear what you guys are enjoying and watching or what you have planned and we'll probably also link to uh there's a there's a there's a facebook horror based group that we're a part of so uh good chance if you're listening you're a part of it as well but just in case not, it's it's a really good place to discuss horror movies, and I'm it's the first time it's existed for uh for for October, so I'm really excited about what the next month is going to bring in discussion there as well. So, so thank you so much, I Joseph. You you are you were one of our first guests on the podcast in general. I'm so glad you're able to wrap up uh, guest request month with us as well, guys. I always appreciate when you have me on, even if you didn't like the movie that much. You were respectful about that, and I always appreciate that. Yes, we love having you on. Thank you so much for for every time you come on. We always have a blast. Um, and like Aaron said, uh, you will be back again in the future. So, uh, yeah, folks, uh, this has been Firefox. Uh, much like, like, much like Clint Eastwood, we're soaring off into the night and that a quick cut to credits (laughs) with no proper ending whatsoever. Good night. Good night. Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment, tell us we're doing a good job only tell us we're doing a good job we're so sensitive we're sensitive boys we're soft boys and uh if you'd like to help other people if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine fine program that we produce at no cost we don't get any money for this you guys have yet to pay us anything we live and we breathe off of good reviews from itunes so if you would please go to itunes review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) 
that's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page, especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.